Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The United States will withdraw from the Paris... Climate Accord. That was President Donald Trump announcing last week that he is pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. The U.S. joined 195 other nations in agreeing to reduce carbon and other pollutants that contribute to climate change. Two years ago was when that agreement was reached. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. The reaction to the president's decision has been widespread and worldwide, with those who are opposed to the move being the loudest. But there are supporters who agree with the president that Paris was a bad deal for America or question whether the climate is changing or if it is caused by humans. Joining us on the first portion of today's program is Professor John Dernbach, who is professor of environmental law and sustainability at uh, Widener, uh, excuse me, Widener University's uh, Commonwealth Law School. Uh, Professor Dernbach, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. Also joining us, Professor Donald Brown, scholar in residence for sustainability and ethics and law at uh, Widener as well. Don Brown, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Both of you gentlemen uh, had been in Paris when uh, the accord was was reached in 2015 or over the years. I mean, this was not just a sit down for a month and let's negotiate this thing. This has been ongoing for some time. So from two people who were actually in Paris and witnessed what was a, a historic agreement. I wanted to get your reactions, even though it is four, year, four days later, I should say. John Derbach, what did you think when you heard the president's announcement? Uh, I was incredibly disappointed. Uh, I think this is... I, I work in a world where uh, facts and information matter, uh, where respect for the, the views of other countries matters. And in, in, in when I was in government, what I learned is you pay a lot of attention to facts and information and, and, and being credible to the people that who, whose, whose decisions, or excuse me, whose, whose lives are going to be affected and whose work is going to be affected by the decisions that are made. And from my point of view, this is a, a reckless and irresponsible decision. And uh, I think it's going to potentially have significant adverse consequences for American workers and the American economy. When, Don, I'm going to get to you in just a moment, but uh, I want to follow up. When you say that uh, uh, you're, you're talking about facts, what's not factual about what you heard with the president uh, withdrawing the nation? Well, as a starting point, he models the world on, on uh, the economy versus the environment. And that might have been true 20, 30 years ago in energy and climate change world, but that's no longer true. Uh, the fast, some of the fastest growing jobs in the United States are renewable energy, wind, uh, solar, and uh, energy efficiency. Uh, the uh, Chinese and the Indians, uh, contrary to what uh, he said, are, are cutting back on their use of, of coal. Uh, as the price of solar and wind falls, and you're seeing Chinese scrapping the development of many new coal plants. And um, frankly, as uh, is, is sad as it is for the people who spent their lives working in coal, it's it's hard to see how they come back. Mm-hmm. So, Don Brown, as part of your title, 
uh, the word ethics is in there, and uh, the times that we've had you on the program, mm-hmm. you've talked about the moral aspects of climate change, of why the United States has a moral responsibility, considering that the rest of the world is living with this uh, and will be living with it uh, in, in the future. So what was your reaction? <clears throat> My reaction is that the decision was... Uh, outrageously dangerous because we're running out of time to prevent dangerous climate change, largely because we haven't done anything for 30 years, largely because the United States has been an obstructionist uh, in the 27 years of negotiations. But it's also infamously immoral, uh, the U.S. position, uh, because uh, uh, the, the, the decision rests rest on economic cost to the United States alone completely ignores the enormous harms that we are causing to the rest of the world in Africa. Um, It completely ignores the duty not to harm other people. So most of the world sees the U.S. as they, they are outraged at the U.S. position because of the unfairness of the U.S. position. The U.S. is still the largest polluter in terms of historical emissions uh, and per capita emissions, much more than China. Um, This is a problem where where some countries are are causing the problem more than other countries. Some countries uh, have much higher per capita emissions. The United States is almost double China's per capita emissions. Uh, And so for the U.S. to look at its own economic interest, assuming wrongly that the claims about the the economic impacts to the United States would be disastrous of the agreement. The United States has a moral duty not to hurt other people. Uh, other countries are, are scared. They are, they are angry uh, because uh, some of them, as you well know, this is, this, is, uh, this is an enormous threat to them from rising seas, uh, storms, floods, droughts, uh, small island developing states, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, Africa is a basket case because of drought right now in, in terms of climate change. For the United States to only look at its economic interests and then justify uh, moving out of an agreement which gave some hope of preventing dangerous climate change, that's outrageously immoral. When you, you use the word fairness, right. uh, ironically, and you heard what right. the president s- said about this, he said it was unfair to American right. workers. Um, what about that? Well, f- almost all people that have looked at, at fairness, fairness is an issue. What is each country's fair share right. of safe there global emissions? There is some monetary part. There's a financial part of this. Well, safe global emissions. Right. But every country's got to do its fair share. Uh, as I've explained before, the cl- this problem's different in ways of other environmental problems. The atmospheric level, like a bathtub, is rising. Uh, some countries more than others are responsible for filling up the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 to levels which are now dangerous. Uh, fairness requires that each country do its fair share. Uh, and, and fairness is, is it's agreed that you have to look at who's caused the problem, uh, the, the per capita levels of emissions. And so this problem requires the whole world to cooperate to solve it. Okay, looking at economic interest alone just doesn't pass ethical or moral scrutiny. John Durbach, you said uh, a little bit earlier in the program that it's a bad deal for American workers. Why? Well, let's let's go back a step or two on, on this, and just in terms of understanding what the Paris Agreement does and how it's different than the Kyoto Protocol, if I can. Right, and qu- and we'll talk about that too. All right. So right. just and then and then let me go ahead. Go ahead. Is a way of understanding this. The Kyoto Protocol was negotiated uh, under the Clinton administration in, in 1997, and the idea was is that un- under the Framework Convention on Climate Change, to which the U.S. is still a party. Developed countries ought to take the lead in addressing climate change because they have the most money, the most technology, and they've contributed the most, as Don just said, to the historic increase in carbon dioxide emissions in the in the atmosphere. But under Kyoto, developed countries then uh, were, were obliged to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and the United States was one of those, but not developing countries. And under uh, uh, President George W. Bush, one of the first things he did was was say the United States was not going to 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 ratify the Kyoto Protocol, 
um, because he thought it was a bad deal. And it was a bad deal in his view because China and India weren't doing anything and they didn't have to do anything under Kyoto. Paris is a different kind of agreement. Under Paris, each country makes its own commitment about what it's going to do on its own without any coercion or obligation uh, from some higher authority. It's a bottom-up agreement. And so when the United States, under President Obama, made its commitment under the, under the, the, the Paris Agreement, it made that commitment with the understanding that it was going to help American workers, which is how it works in the auto industry, is how it works with wind and solar and others, and 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 that was basically the the uh, um, the, the way in, in in which this works. Now, so what happens is, and, and it works that way because the cost of renewables is falling, energy efficiency is more economically uh, advantageous. The rest of the world is moving very rapidly in the direction of renewable energy, energy efficiency, and decarbonizing their economies. And for for the United States not to participate in that is a lost opportunity for the U.S. Now, one thing we have heard and um, over the last few years, but especially since the president made this announcement last week, is that the United States has reduced its carbon footprint in the last few years, that uh, there's less reliance on coal, that we're getting away from coal, that uh, we are not producing as much carbon as what we did, say, and I, and I can't give uh, exact dates, but they point out that that's been a voluntary thing and that the United States is producing less pollution, less, uh, you know, less of the pollutants that uh, do contribute to uh, climate change. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, what that leaves out is the enormity and speed that we must reduce greenhouse gas emissions internationally. Uh, the whole world, even uh, countries that have opposed action, such as Saudi Arabia, agreed to limit the warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade. And what a lot of people don't know, that requires the 1.5 number requires the whole world to be zero carbon between 2045 and 2050. So the magnitude of reductions that are now necessary to prevent really dangerous climate change is staggering. But it's not only the magnitude, it's the speed that the world must reduce emissions to prevent catastrophic warming. To, uh, to achieve the 1.5 warming limit goal, the whole world must be zero carbon between 2045 and 2050. The U.S. reductions were simply an accident of moving from, from coal to natural gas, uh, but natural, we, we, we must get out of natural gas to, to achieve the warming limits uh, of, of 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade. So we have to go much faster, claiming that we've already reduced emissions uh, and, and, and loses the, the, uh, the fact that we must go much faster uh, to prevent dangerous warming. And we must go much faster, particularly because we have an obligation to the poor, vulnerable countries around the world that, that get harmed by this problem. I uh, just wanted to follow up on that. Uh, you know, something else in, in researching the program that I've seen several people saying that uh, who do support uh, Paris and, uh, you know, making a move to, uh, uh, to get to those goals have said that two degrees... Celsius is or was uh, unrealistic anyway, that the best we could hope for was one and a half <coughs> degrees. And you know, I'll have you explain, talk about that, but talk about what the, the difference. I mean, it doesn't sound like right. here in the United States where we de deal in Fahrenheit, uh, a lot of people even have a hard time right. understanding, uh, you know, metric with centigrade okay. and Celsius. But the difference between that 1.5 and 2 and the question of whether it was realistic. Okay. So just a couple of quick comments on, on that. Um, NASA published uh, a report in January indicating that um, since about 1950, global surface temperatures have increased to about by about 1.78 degrees Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. uh, which is almost a degree Celsius by itself. And that's simply from 1950. Uh, and and uh, the, the, there's an argument for sure that two degrees is unrealistic, but there's a parallel point to be made about two degrees, which is that it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, when you begin to see how sea level rise is unfolding, 
and you think about parts of the United States that are vulnerable to sea level rise, including the uh, the Florida Peninsula, um, coastal cities, the uh, the big naval base uh, in in Virginia, uh, it's going to it's a hard thing to do. And because getting to two degrees C or limiting warming to two degrees C is so hard, every country needs to be working as hard as it can. What is the difference, though, between that 1.5 and Mm. 2 degrees Celsius? Well, um, um, a a figure which which you constantly hear, for every 1 degree centigrade, you get at least 6 meters of sea level rise, okay, Uh, which is... Everywhere? Globally, yeah. Okay, globally, you get for every 1 degree of uh, Celsius, which is 2.6 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, you get... Uh, six meters of sea level rise. Okay, that's above 18 feet of sea level rise. That's catastrophic. Uh, The whole world agreed to to the 1.5 and 2 because it's so dangerous. Uh, Not not only does do the harms go up in proportion to the temperature rise, but what the world is worried about is triggering rapid nonlinear responses of the climate system, which have happened before in Earth's history. Above two degrees centigrade, the reason why every country agreed to it, including the OPEC countries who have historically opposed anything, because it's because the science is really scary that above two degrees centigrade, it is in fact possible for the for the warming to get out of control. So every country agreed to the 1.5 to two degrees centigrade because the science says above that is too scary to even contemplate. Mm-hmm. Let's take a phone call from Jim and Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Uh, my main complaint with, with uh, your guest today is that they're not being harsh enough on, on the president. Uh, uh, you, you know, the, the pre- certainly there are a lot of reasons why the president uh, should not have done what he did. But in his uh, justification for doing it, he has engaged in outright falsehood, just falsehood after falsehood. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I, a couple of comments very briefly. Uh, there are several Pennsylvania politicians who support the president, and I would name Senator Toomey, Congressman Schuster, Congressman Barletta, and many others. They need to be on your show, and they need to, to defend this decision. What, you know, what, what falsehoods? Um, the president says we are bound by Paris and that the Chinese are not. That is simply not true. There's no argument about that. The president says that cutting, uh, getting out of uh, Paris is going to bring back coal jobs. That is demonstrably not true. Coal is losing the battle of, uh, with competing energy, like uh, natural gas and solar and wind. And, you know, just, just argument after argument is simply made up, is simply a falsehood. And, uh, you know, this is, this is not a left or right issue. We need to hold our, our politicians to the truth. And this, the president is not telling the truth. Thank you. All right, Jim. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, well, you know, that last part of what Jim had, and I'll have you, you know, respond to what he had to say, but that last part, he said, not a left or right issue. Um, it has become a political issue, and it became a political issue a long time ago. And, you know, now maybe you are seeing more people on the right who are uh, willing to say, okay, we have to do something here. I mean, many of you talked about the OPEC countries done. I mean, to me, to me, 10 years ago, that was unimaginable. Uh, and many of the, the fossil fuel producing companies in this country that supported staying in Paris, something that you couldn't imagine 10 years ago. So there is that, but it still is a political issue, but there are people who are you know, changing their minds a little bit and are willing to go out there. But getting back to what uh, what Jim had to say about uh, the president. I, it, what I started out the program saying is, you know, Don and I have been have been in, in this world of, of environmental law and policy now for, let's just say, a long time. And what makes the president's decision on Thursday so difficult to respond to in the conventional language that we use is that it's so far outside the boundaries of anything that we've, we've, we've seen before. Um, it, is, it, 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 is, it is counterfactual. It is, it, is, it is incredibly disrespectful of the other countries that we need to work with. 
it's really motivated, I think, by the notion of, of by, by environmental regulation and sort of a response to environmental regulation. But the Secretary of Defense believes that climate change is a national security issue. Uh, President Trump's uh, uh, Secretary of State believes that this is going to create all sorts of problems for him in negotiating uh, deals with other countries. Who was the president of Exxon. Who was the president of Exxon. You've got um, coastal communities all over the country that are worried about sea level rise. Uh, And so what happens is if you just look at the climate change issue through the regulatory lens, it's easy to see this as a left-right issue. If you look at climate change and national security or economic development or climate change adaptation or moral terms, all right, or religious terms, um, then then it, it doesn't look like a left-right issue at all. The, the president also said that when he made this announcement that he was willing to go back and renegotiate, mm-hmm. that uh, he called this a bad deal mm-hmm. for the United States, for American workers, American uh, employers, um, but that he was willing to go back and, and negotiate. I mean, a lot of people looked at that and said, okay, well, he's thrown a line out there that mm-hmm. he's not totally uh, abandoned Paris, that he is willing to, to go back and, and look at what he considers a bad deal and improving that deal. Uh, he's not going to renegotiate the deal. The rest of the world has will not renegotiate it with them. Already Germany, Italy, and France have issued statements they're not going to renegotiate the deal. The deal allows each country to set its own target. If he wants to change the target, he can do it under the deal. Uh, the, the caller was absolutely right. The, 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 the uh, statement is full of vicious lies, uh, dis- distortions. I count 14 of them in a six-page document. It's an amazingly untruthful document. Uh, the United States is free to set any target it wants under the agreement. And by the way, at least 36 countries have set tougher targets than the United States. The entire the 28-member European Union and eight other countries have set tougher targets than the United States. So the agreement is full of vicious distortions and untruths. Uh, too many to, to 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 talk about in, in a short time. Well, okay, but give us an example. You said there are fourteen. I want to ask you to listen okay. for the for the fourteen. But uh, what are some of the, the most significant ones? Uh, well, there that this will drive business to a halt. Uh, that American families will suffer jobs. That it will only the Paris Agreement will only create one tenth of a degree. Uh, uh, less warming and actually create nine-tenths of a degree less warming. The entire economic analysis was done by a front group uh, for the, the coal company. The economic analysis is completely untruthful, not to mention it ignores the harms to other people. Uh, it makes distortions about China. He claims that uh, he's mayor of Pittsburgh, not not Paris. Uh, Pittsburgh has actually set a really tough target, much tougher than the U.S. target. Uh, uh, the uh, he says other countries have no ob- no obligations, and when, as I said, every country in the world has submitted uh, has created a target. Uh, he claims it undermines U.S. sovereignty. No, it doesn't. The U.S. is completely free to decide what it wants to do. It's completely voluntary. And mm-hmm. I could go on. We have several emails here from listeners. Uh, one who says the Paris Accord was non-binding. There was no reason to dump it. Trump was just poking his finger in the, the eye of President Obama, liberal scientist, the whole world, petty. Uh, Lisa and Adam say, I'm opposed to the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord for environmental reasons, but I'm also concerned about the political impact. I believe our withdrawal from the Accord is a de facto withdrawal from worldwide leadership, which will be seen in the future as the defining moment in the decline of our nation economically and politically. Do you want to address that as well? Well, for my entire adult life and and for much earlier, since really the end of World War II and even earlier than that, the United States has operated on the principle that it's going to figure out ways to make its interests and the rest of the world's interests work together. U.S. leadership around the world has been premised on the notion that there is compatibility between U.S. interests and the interests of other countries. Um, certainly the, 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 the democracies of Western Europe, Japan, uh, much of the rest of the world. 
And and what you see here, and what a lot of commentators see here, um, is a view that the United States is going to go it alone. In a big, complicated world, you can't get anywhere, and you can't protect the welfare and, 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 and safety and well-being of U.S. citizens by going it alone. You need allies. You need to be able to work with other countries. And so I, I agree with the person who, who sent that email. We have a, another email says, uh, I'm an energy analyst living in Enola and wanted to share these data points. And you touched on this earlier. Cost of commercial wind has fallen 66% in the last seven years. Commercial, commercial solar fallen 84% last seven years. Solar and wind are now cheaper than coal in most of the U.S., most of the world, partly due to these new economics last year in the U.S. 67% of all new power plant capacity were wind and solar plants. Globally, 51% of all new power plants built in 2016 were wind and solar. Now, I have nothing to back up the, those statistics, but do they sound right to you? Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, not to mention there are now dozens and dozens and perhaps there are 3,000 cities around the world that have set climate change targets. Okay. Uh, the real hope is at the local level and many local governments, even in countries that you would be surprised to find this, China, for instance, local governments and county governments are setting much more aggressive targets that would be required of the United States under the Paris Agreement. Let's follow up on that a little bit, because one of the reactions to the president's announcement on Thursday were many cities, many states, including Pennsylvania, uh, there were people who were saying, uh, politicians, elected officials in those, those areas, saying, well, uh, we don't care what the president says, what the federal government's going to do. We are going to honor uh, the, the tenets of uh, Paris Accord on our own. Does that make a difference? Yeah, it can. Uh, the, 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 uh, the idea basically is companies, local governments, and states working together to see how, far, how close they can come to the commitment that we made in 2015 um, on the Paris Agreement. And there's a fair bit of evidence that, that states and cities and local governments by themselves, along with private companies, can go a fair way in that direction. Could we go further if we had federal leadership on this? Absolutely. Do we need federal leadership? Absolutely. California, Jerry Brown, governor of California, has uh, said that he will even work with other governments mm -hmm. across the world. Now, California obviously is the largest state in this country. Mm -hmm. California has been very aggressive uh, in, the, in environmental mm -hmm. uh, issues. Uh, as big as California is, would that make a difference, just California? Uh, absolutely. Uh, California already has agreements. They have a cap-and-trade program. It has an agreement with Alberta and is has approached other Canadian provinces. California is approaching China to to create perhaps a, 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 a joint cap-and-trade program. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the real hope is what's happening at, at the state and local government level around the world. There are, as I said, there are 3,000 cities that have set targets. And there's at least, a, I believe, 50 or 60 targets have committed to go to carbon zero uh, around the world. Uh, so the real hope, we, uh, I'm working on a program with 40 universities in Pennsylvania and 12 environmental groups. We're, we're calling it all hands on deck going to zero. Uh, we got to get approach our local governments and explain to them why it's in their interest to do this. By the way, when, when cities do this, they often claim they save money, they improve the quality of life. Uh, and so uh, the, oh, a really big hope is, is, is what's happening at the local level. We, we've, we have 2,500 communities in Pennsylvania, and only about eight or nine of them have targets uh, we need to get religious people and other people approach their cities and work with them to reduce their carbon f carbon footprint. By the way, I just wanted to uh, mention here that, uh, you know, I think Jim, our caller earlier, mentioned uh, several of the local congressmen. We did reach out to Congressman Keith Rothfuss and Congressman Lou Barletta uh, to appear on today's program. Both declined. We also had scheduled uh, Pennsylvania's Republican Chairman Val DiGiorgio to appear on the program, uh, and uh, you know, he supports the president's action last week. Uh, we were 
supposed to hear from him at uh, about five minutes ago. We have not. So uh, I'm assuming that we will not. So I just wanted to point that out that, uh, you know, we have reached out to uh, uh, others who, um, you know, do support uh, the president's uh, action taken last Thursday. Uh, I want to follow up a little bit more. So what uh, what does the future hold now? I mean, now that the president has pulled out, uh, what do, what's the future look like? Well, I think it's obvious that states and local governments and private companies, probably under the leadership of uh, former New York Mayor Bloomberg, are going to create some kind of coalition to create some kind of alternative uh, U.S. presence at the international level built in, 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 in the way that, that Don and I have been describing. Um, the, the Professor Michael Girard uh, uh, at Columbia Law School and I are working on a project to uh, develop uh, legal pathways to deep decarbonization in the United States. Uh, it's a it's a, an edited volume comprised of leading lawyers and law professors from around the country. We'll be publishing that next year. It shows hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of legal ways that you can decarbonize the U.S. economy based not just on federal action but state, local, and, 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 and private action. And I think it's possible that state, local governments, and corporations are going to intensify their efforts beyond what they would have done had there been stronger federal leadership. Let's take another call from Russ in Juniata County. Russ, you're on the air. Oh, hi. This is Bruce. Oh, I'm sorry. Bruce, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. I read an article recently that Denmark had such renewable energy that they told their power plants to shut down for two consecutive days. And it's interesting because Carter gave renewable energy tax credits because of the price of oil. Reagan took them away because oil went down and Denmark bought most of the technology. That's all. All right. Thank you very much for your call. True. Yeah, uh, Denmark, uh, several days last year, uh, ran 100% renewable energy to power the entire city. It's mostly it's mostly less than that. I think the renewable energy uh, content of the electricity is about 60%. Um, but there are many cities that are using enormous amounts of particularly solar energy um, because the price is now so inexpensive. As Professor Dernbach said, it's... Uh, solar is now competitive with coal, with coal, and so there is a lot of hope that renewable energy will become much more economically achievable. Professor John Dernbach, who is professor of environmental law and sustainability, and Professor Donald Brown, scholar in residence for sustainability, ethics, and law at Widener's Environmental Law and Sustainability Center, Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Every day seems to bring another bombshell from the White House since Donald Trump took office January 20th. There are several reasons President Trump has gone against and undid many of the policies of his predecessor, Barack Obama, and he carries himself and communicates in a loud and bombastic way. Trump also expresses his innermost thoughts on Twitter, seemingly with no filter. Brooke Gladstone is the Peabody Award-winning host of WNYC's On the Media program that is heard on Mondays at uh, 2 here on WITF. She's written a new book called The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination of on Moral Panic in Our Time. Brooke Gladstone is with us on the phone now. Uh, Ms. Gladstone, welcome to the program. Here, let me get the right one. There you go. Are you there? Yes, I okay. am. Thanks for having right. me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I uh, want to start by asking, uh, why did you write this book? Well, we all know that the country's terribly polarized, but uh, I think one thing that isn't altogether clear is that we don't just live in two different bubbles. We live in uh, 
you know, hundreds of <laughs> hundreds of millions of bespoke handmade bubbles that we have to craft, otherwise we couldn't function in the world. The world's too complex to understand in its entirety. And so what happened to a lot of people, people who didn't support Trump, was that when he was voted in, it, it, the distress that was felt in many quarters was, uh, was not like just getting a president you didn't support. In fact, it went beyond politics. It went to the heart of the way that people thought the world worked, the way it was working. And so I call that a kind of reality crash. And I sort of describe how we are biologically wired to craft these realities and culturally encouraged to do so, and then how you can uh, make some efforts to figure out what about your reality is not durable to hold up when it crashes against another one. So I had to piece together another one more durably. You, you, one of the first questions you ask in the book, and you have quotes from several people who have discussed and written about it, is what is reality? And today, from what you write, one person's reality is different from another person's. Absolutely. They have to be. I mean, we, we, see, we create our realities from what we see and what we know, but also from what we don't see and what we don't know, but we feel. So the information that we have is kind of like marinated in our values and our beliefs and our traditions, and that's how we create our truth our reality. So tr truths can be different, even sometimes when they're, you know, created from the same facts. But of course, we always leave out the facts that challenge the, the sort of integrity of our truth. Once we've set up a reality and we understand how things work, we will reject information that challenges that view of reality, because it is just plain too disturbing. That is, that's fascinating, and you write exactly about that in the book, about research that found when subjects were confronted with a candidate that uh, they support who was lying or being untruthful, the, the brain reacted with almost panic, and then in the end, it didn't change their minds. No. In fact, once they figured out how to incorporate or accept or dismiss or otherwise live with the lie, they got a shot of dopamine, which is pretty much what people get when they take cocaine. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we're up against, Scott. I know, it's I know. It's very hard to look beyond ourselves. That's why, and I was listening with great interest to the show you had just before this one. And, uh, you know, there are facts. It's not debatable. I mean, the research has gone on for decades now. I was speaking to a libertarian a few years ago that uh, talked about how many scientific fear-mongering scenarios like overpopulation, uh, they went away because the data didn't support it, right? You know, so people are suspicious of science. But the data hasn't gone away for decades over uh, climate change and over the human's role in it. It just increases practically by the hour until it is literally in front of our faces. And in some ways, it's kind of like the lie that the candidate that we support tells us. We're faced with this information. We either, we either blind ourselves to it, or we dismiss it, or we ignore it. But if we accept it, then we have to accept other things that we are not willing to accept. And so we reject it. So when people say they're open-minded, are they really? I think that people believe they are, but no. You can't be open-minded simply by declaring it. You don't know for sure that you're open-minded until you get a twisty feeling in the center of your stomach that signals that you are genuinely being challenged. Simply to stand there while somebody speaks, waiting for them to finish so that you can speak, is not being open-minded. Being open-minded is when you have that horrible feeling somewhere in the pit of your bones that 
this there may be some information that will threaten your reality and you know this from you know conducting interviews and talking to people over the years but what you just described is so true that so many people's definition of listening is exactly what you just said, waiting their turn. And many people won't wait their turn until the other person is finished so they can state their opinion. It's an art. It's something, it's a skill that we really, many people don't have in this country, and I can only assume around the world, is really, really listening to what someone is saying. I agree. And of course, you know, you and I, we have these jobs where if we don't listen, then we sound pretty stupid. We've all heard uh, radio hosts that uh, will ask a question and the guest will answer it. And then they ask a question that the guest has already answered, but they haven't been listening because they're looking at their piece of paper. (laughs) That is a lousy radio host. (laughs) But, uh, But in real life, you know, listening has the potential of endangering what we have so carefully, if unconsciously, crafted. And, and that's what the book does. It's a very short book. Uh, but basically what it, what it does is explains why and how we make our realities and why we have to. And I'm not even saying go out there and see if you can have your mind changed. We all know, each of us know, that we are right. (laughs) I am saying, as a matter of self-defense, go out there, see what you don't usually see, so you can build a stronger reality. And I mean, if you're a liberal on the coast, terribly upset about what Trump represents, find out why you didn't expect him to get elected when there were tons of people who did. If you are someone who lives in the country and, uh, and, you know, feels very strongly that the environments have stolen your job somehow, uh, go out and see if that's true. Because if the environment, if the environmentalists haven't stolen your job and your job is still going, then you, there may be another reason, you know, and you can defend yourself better. So I see it as a, as a measure of self-defense to go out at, outside your comfort zone, despite the fact that it makes you feel a little bit nauseated, and, uh, and find out you don't know so that your reality can hold up against uh, further uh, great crashes on the uh, highway of infinite realities that makes up this country in the world. But you know, Brooke, and you know this, you talk about it every week, is that the sources of information to, to tell us what is truth, what is factual, that sometimes they're, if not difficult to find, at least there is another source out there that has the complete opposite point of view. Right. And, you know, looking for alternate sources of information is in itself extremely tricky, even if you have the absolute best intentions in this regard. What a lot of people do is they say, okay, I'm going to go and find somebody who disagrees with me. And then they find the most extreme, basically ill-informed, clearly deranged view from the other side. I mean, I know that this happens in the liberal cohort, and I have seen it happen frequently in the uh, conservative cohort as well. People go out for the extreme opposite because then they can find it very validating. Listen to that guy. Listen to that woman. They're just complete idiots. I'm right to believe what I believe. That's not challenging yourself. You'll know that because you won't feel that queasiness. If you step out a little ways, don't go for the extreme. But for someone who disagrees, then uh, then you really are challenging yourself. Um, it's not easy to do. It takes time. There was a time when even partisans from, you know, from far different political perspectives would still work from a common pool of information. But we have entered a realm where facts are suddenly optional. Uh, our president has said on the campaign trail and since he is president, Ignore those facts that disagree with what I believe. You know, I like the congressional, you know, the congressional budget office is great when it affirms my policies, 
when it says that uh, but when it says that 24 million people will lose health care well then the congressional budget office is rigged uh, the same thing I mean uh, the president will quote the times you'll find him quoting the times all the time when there's something positive in there when it's negative the times is failing the times is corrupt the times is fake news this enables the people who support Trump to do the same thing, to believe that the truth is truly unknowable, that everybody has an agenda, and that frees everybody up to pick up whatever fact, quote-unquote, supports their position. And it creates a position where no negotiation from a common pool of facts is possible, and democracy depends on that negotiation. So if we don't have a common pool of facts, if we live entirely separate realities, we can't have democracy. And I think that's what frightens people much more than simply an election not going their own way. That is frightening. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Brooke Gladstone is with us today. She's the uh, host uh, of uh, what can be heard on WITF Mondays at 2, WNYC's On the Media program. And she has a new book called The Trouble with Reality. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You talk about how the media love covering the early Trump campaign, because it got so much attention and help ratings. But then the media did an about-face. I've always, and I've said on this program before, without trying to express too much of an opinion, that that early coverage of the Trump campaign is what made the Trump campaign. Well, I do believe it had a huge impact. Now, you would think, because CNN did lunatic things like, you know, having a choice between covering a speech by Hillary Clinton at a campaign event or covering an empty podium where Trump has not yet arrived, they chose the empty podium. I mean, you know, whatever you may think of the candidates, that's insane. How is that a valuable use of your time? But they didn't want to miss a single second of the Trump spectacle. They all knew that it was good for ratings. And let us, let us please stipulate that Trump would not have been such catnip for the media if he hadn't been catnip for the public. The, the press, the media, want audiences and Trump created them. So the question is, is what is the role of the media? Are the media businesses, or are they public institutions that are designed to ignore the profit motive? And uh, one thing I discuss in the book is that, uh, you know, Walter Lippmann, a great uh, social critic from the 20s, said, the media will never work all that well to fulfill the mission that Thomas Jefferson wanted them to fulfill, Because they're a business, and people from then till now don't want to pay for information, don't feel that they should have to. They will pay for entertainment. And so the entertainment is what keeps the presses rolling, keeps the cameras on. It is the tail that wags the news dog, so to speak. Hence, we have the Trump phenomenon. You also write that the mainstream media recovered its old revolutionary fire and blocked the reflex to protect the appearance of objectivity at all costs by giving equal time to unequal arguments. Now, there are some who would read that, and I think you know who they are, (laughs) that lack of objectivity will turn some people off and give them ammunition to say, well, see, we knew this all along. There's a political agenda. Right. Um and people have said that already. Scott, oh, I know, clearly. I know, I know. But, but the thing is, is that what I said is the appearance of objectivity. Uh, not that it, there, it makes much of a difference when you're consuming the news. Uh, the trouble is, is that the appearance of objectivity forces distortions in the coverage. It makes the coverage less accurate. What am I talking about here? I'm saying that in order to, for many, many years, decades... In order to duck criticism, the media would offer equal time to 
a scientist that represented the global scientific consensus and a scientist that was generally paid for by an oil company to present an alternate view on climate change. And I'm not saying that that alternate view should not be reported. I'm just saying it shouldn't be presented in equal light or with equal focus to the vast consensus of scientific opinion backed by years of data. But because for years the media, in order to protect that appearance of objectivity, provided unequal information in an equal way, it failed its public. It misinformed the public as to the truth in order to make itself appear to be objective, when in fact it was distorting the true picture. And at some point, you have to decide, why are you even in business? Are you in business to, you know, basically cover your butt? Or are you (laughs) in business to provide, to the best of your ability, the highest quality information in a proper context? You know, the first uh, media organization that has CYA on their logo, I'm going <laughs> to, it, it would be a first, but we only have about 60 seconds left, Brooke. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. But I have to mention the president's tweets. You you break down the president's tweets. I don't know if you can do that in 60 seconds or less sure. or not. I'm, what I say is that there is a taxonomy, so to speak. There is a way to interpret the president's tweets, and it goes in a few categories. There's the deflection tweet. There's the... Uh, preemption tweet, there's the trial balloon, and so on, the diversion tweet. They're all laid out in in the little book, and it helps you translate what the intention is behind the tweet, because usually the intention of the tweet is more important, more substantial than the actual substance of the tweet. Brooke Gladstone is the host of On the Media. It's heard on WITF Mondays at 2. Brooke, what's on today's program? Well, let's see. Today, actually, we're going into the area of left-wing conspiracy theories, theories. left-wing lunacy, just so you don't think we're only focusing on the right. (laughs) Brooke Gladstone, thank you very much for being with us today. Bye-bye. Coming up on tomorrow's program, new research that ties a rise in the thyroid cancer, in thyroid cancers, I should say, to the Three Mile Island accident in 1979 and removing Confederate monuments. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org.